It's midday on the first Monday of the month, which can only mean it's time for Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, broadcasting from the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town. I'm Cindy Moritz, and we're going to dive straight into the wealth of good reading brought to you by our team of reviewers. Penny Lorimer reviewed Zola by Johann Jack Smith, a new South African author, as well as The Turn of the Key by Ruth Ware, a modern update of Henry James' The Turn of the Screw. Philip Todras journeyed into the divisive science of race in Skin by Gavin Evans. Beryl Eichenberger was lucky to grab a few minutes on the line with British author Anna Pasternak and spoke about her latest novel, Untitled, The Real Wallace Simpson, Duchess of Windsor, among other things. John Hanks considered how we should react to a book titled Orca, The Day the Great White Sharks Disappeared, written by Richard Pierce, and, possibly related, Philippa Schaeffitz dipped her spoon into Jamie Oliver's Veg, his quest to introduce more meat-free, veg-based meals into the daily diet. Vanessa Levenstein found a common link in three seemingly different reads, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, As If Born to You by Susan Newham Blake, and Under the Camelthorn Tree, Raising a Family of Lions by Kate Nichols. Leslie Beek was charmed to find two children's books in which life is a little less hectic, A Boy Called Bat and Bat and the Waiting Game by Ilana K. Arnold, with pictures by Charles Santoso, and gives a brief nod to a non-fiction Dawling Kindersley publication, A Child Through Time, illustrated by Steve Noon. To round it all up, Vanessa Levenstein spoke to Martine Volks about a special book club that is dear to our hearts and will likely creep into yours. Penny Lorimer, your reads were thrilling as usual. Zola is Johann Jack Smith's first novel. Originally written in Afrikaans, it's been very ably translated into English by Jaco Adriansa. It features Johannesburg police captain David Majola and his partner, warrant officer Jason Basson. Both policemen are somewhat tormented by their pasts. Majola by a difficult early life, a lost love and a cocaine addiction, and Basson by guilt for actions undertaken in the bad old days of apartheid, and his regret at not leaving the South African police service years earlier. Although they've managed to find common ground and work together well, there are still racial tensions between them which are exacerbated by this case. And this case involves a violent killer who is cruising the streets of Johannesburg in a taxi known as a Zola Bud, hence the book's title, Zola. Early one morning, a dead woman is found hanging from a bridge at an exit from the M1. She has obviously been violently tortured, so violently, in fact, that the fetus she was carrying aborted. Also, a number of mysterious numbers and letters have been carved into her back. On further investigation, it becomes apparent that she's not the first victim of a brutal killer or killers. The number of casualties mounts as police, top brass, journalists, politicians and taxi bosses step up the pressure on Majola, Basson and the rest of their team to find the taxi monster or monsters. Majola's boss also insists on involving Majola's retired mentor, Captain Dan Lewitz, 
who, despite having been declared unfit for service by SAPS, may be able to provide guidance. This thriller is quite brutal. I read it during the recent weeks of protests on gender abuse, and perhaps because of that, I did find myself wondering whether it's time that this and other crime authors stop treating so many fictional women as expendable in pursuit of a more extreme plotline. And I say this as one who has dispatched fictional women myself. That being said, I found the book well-researched and written. The process of the investigation, the uneasy relationships between police personnel from different cultures and backgrounds, and the depiction of a city still plagued by apartheid history, as well as the current crime and corruption with which we are all too familiar, ring very true. So, if you have a strong stomach and don't mind being reminded of the ruthlessness and cruelty of daily life for some in South Africa, then I recommend this multi-layered and highly believable thriller. My daughter is planning to work as an au pair in America next year, which is possibly why I chose to read The Turn of the Key by Ruth Ware. This, her fifth novel, is apparently an updated version of Henry James's novel The Turn of the Screw, which involves the murder of a child by a governess. This more modern story is written in the first person and takes the form of a letter to a barrister from 27-year-old Rowan, who is in prison. She's trying to persuade him to take her case, pleading that she didn't kill that child. As her story unfolds, we learn how Rowan applied for a fabulously well-paid position as a live-in nanny for the four daughters of a wealthy couple in a remote and beautiful part of the Scottish Highlands. At her interview, she was easily persuaded to take up the post by a seemingly pleasant and very keen mother of the children and a luxurious, technologically smart home filled with every possible modern convenience. She admits that she shouldn't have ignored a little mental warning when she found out that quite a few nannies before her had resigned in quick succession. Anyway, the day after she starts the new job, her employers, a pair of architects, depart, perhaps a bit implausibly, for a trade fair, leaving Rowan in sole charge. This is not before the father of the children has been sexually suggestive, but she's confident of her ability to handle this creep whenever he returns. Then things begin to unravel. The children are, not surprisingly, suspicious of her, and difficult as a result. The technology that runs the house proves to be a bit inefficient at times. The part-time cleaner is unfriendly. Added to all this, Rowan is prevented from sleeping properly by strange and scary sounds and happenings in the night. These may or may not be related to the historical death by poisoning of an 11-year-old. It's only the attractive gardener-come-handyman who seems supportive of her struggles, but various events make her doubt whether she can actually trust him. Rowan's a sympathetic character who admits to having made mistakes, but who maintains throughout that she's not guilty of murder. If you believe her, this means that someone or something else is. I must admit that this thriller succeeded at keeping me on the edge of my seat, and the hints of horror made me want to persuade my daughter to stay home and find another, safer job. I reviewed Zola by John Jack Smith and The Turn of the Key by Ruth Ware. Philip Todras, you found Gavin Evans' Skin Deep, Journeys in the Divisive Science of Race, more than interesting. Skin Deep, Journeys in the Divisive Science of Race, by Gavin Evans and published by Jonathan Ball, is a scary and fascinating read 
it uncomfortably focuses on man's obsessive need to generalise about the other. Evans was born in London and grew up in Cape Town, studied economic history and law before completing a PhD in political studies, and writes extensively on race and racism, and is based in London. And obviously his South African experience has a lot to do. He played a very activist role while he was here in South Africa. Let's start with, and I'll quote him, We live in a world in which racism is widely viewed as abhorrent. Most people would deny they are racist, and yet many find it hard to avoid slipping into a kind of casual stereotyping with a racist tinge. He's so meticulous, it's those Germanic genes. Those hot Latino emotions are never far away from the surface. She's a bit of a mystic. It's her emotions. It's her Irish roots. He loves a good argument. It's in his Jewish blood. It's all too easy to place the assets of others in an ethnic package, but it's no great leap from this anodym, blurring of cultural and racial stereotypes, to describing unequivocally negative traits. Yep, it is very uncomfortable that the unwelcome revival of race science is very much with us, and race science is still as bogus as ever, to quote The Guardian. To get back to quoting from Evans' book, he talks about the complementary ideas of a link between race and intelligence and between race and character have long pedigrees, probably even longer than slavery and colonialism. But because such thinking is seldom aired in polite circles nowadays, it's tempting to think that Stephen Bannon aside is confined to the anonymous midnight trolls who furiously patrol racist websites. But there's been an uncomfortable revival, and we'll go back into that and what he thinks some of it comes from. And it's amazing in the 20th century, and again to quote, there are good reasons to bother because after post-Holocaust lull, scientific racism and I think scientific racism should be in quotes, has returned in full-fledged brazen form and its current alt-right wave is still building its momentum. And then he does go into his South African past, which I think is an important one where South Africa, the Hamite myth, draws a veil on the African past. And I quote again, let's return to an example of people with racist beliefs who wielded real power, Nowhere was this belief more systematically advanced than in South Africa, where the obfuscation of the historical record was viewed as imperative, and scientists, psychologists, church and ministers, and historians contributed. The idea that the proof of racial differences in intelligence can be drawn from IQ tests is also spurious. Such tests measure the capacity to cope with a certain kind of abstract logic. They are therefore useful to set aptitude for certain jobs, university courses, and so on. However, they do not and cannot measure general intelligence. In fact, general intelligence doesn't really exist. Just to give you an idea of some of the topics that Evans does cover, he goes into what is scientific racism. Are we smarter than our ancestors? Why did humans migrate? Is Africa really backwards? And that is a chapter one really needs to go into in greater detail. Where did scientific racism come from? Are race groups real? So you can see the tremendous range of things that he does cover. But I think it's the final word that I would like to quote. It would be a happy delusion to assume a book like this could be more than a slow puncture in the next bubble of racist science. And one thing we can be sure of is that more bubbles will blow our way. We can also be certain that the battle over ideas won't be a fair fight. The claims made by race science invariably gets more of a hearing than the antidotes.
and I think I need to quote his final sentence. The 20th century showed us where bad ideas about race can lead. If we don't want the 21st to echo these themes, bad ideas need to be counted whenever and wherever they appear. This book has been my effort. I hope you will consider taking up the fight. I hope you will consider taking up Skin Deep and give it a good read. was At the Jazz Band Ball by the Riverboat Jazz Band. To mark the publication by Hay House of the first book of spiritual teachings in several years from international best-selling author and teacher Dr. Wayne W. Dyer, titled Happiness is the Way, we're giving away one copy. This book draws on Wayne's audio lectures from the 1990s and 2000s, restructuring them to offer a fresh take on his teachings.
Call us on 021-401-1013 and tell us, what is the way, happiness or sadness? The winner will be contacted after the show, so don't delay and get calling now. The number again, 021-401-1013. Beryl Eichenberger snatched a few minutes of British author Anna Pasternak's time when she was visiting South Africa last month. They spoke about the real Wallace Simpson, among other things. Anna Pasternak is the New York Times best-selling author of Princess in Love and Lara, the untold love story and the inspiration for Dr. Zhivago, about Olga Ivanskia, lover of her great-uncle Boris. Her latest book, untitled The Real Wallace Simpson, reveals a very different character from the one we love to hate. Her work has appeared in Vanity Fair, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, Town and Country, Tatler and every major British newspaper, and she lives in England. But fortunately for us, she's out here in South Africa for a short while. Firstly, Anna, hello and welcome. Hello, thank you so much. (laughs) Lovely to have you in South Africa, and I'm really sad that you're not able to be in Cape Town, which is very beautiful. Me too, but it was lovely to be in South Africa. (laughs) But perhaps next time, let's work that out. Definitely next time. So... I want to explore you, the woman behind the books, and then a little of the women in the books. But let's start with a Pasternak name. Sure, Dr. Javago is an iconic book that transcends generations and, of course, won Boris Pasternak the Nobel Prize in Literature, and I think there are few people who have not heard of him. Your grandfather, Leonid Pasternak, was a famous painter. What was it like growing up in this family? A blessing or a curse? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what was interesting when I was growing up, that it was considered rather gauche uh, to sort of make anything of the fact that uh, we were Pasternak and related to such a famous man. (laughs) Mm. Um, Obviously, when I went into journalism straight after university, I got teased a lot in my early articles because people would sort of say things, you know, news editors would say, your great uncle be turning in his grave. You know, you're churning (laughs) out these, uh, these sort of lightweight, journalistic pieces and in fact it is because of the legacy of my heritage that it took me two decades uh, to sort of work up the courage to write the book I really always wanted to write which is as you've mentioned Lara Lara. the untold true story behind the love story and it's interesting that if your great uncle has won the Nobel Prize for Literature and you go into that same territory with the book I was absolutely terrified that I was going to be mauled by the critics and far from it, what was so wonderful for me uh, was that I, um, the book received critical acclaim because the critics were saying that for the first time I had rehabilitated a woman whom history and my family had mistreated. Yeah. And in fact, so, uh, so vociferous were my family against Olga Avinskaya, Boris's mistress of muse, that, for example, my grandmother refused ever to utter her name with her words. They felt that for Boris to have had two wives and then this very public mistress really was against their sort of staunch moral code. And it took me five years to persuade Olga Avinskaya's daughter, Irina, who's now in her early 80s and lives in Paris, to speak with me. So hurt was she by my family's attitude towards her and her mother. And I had to say, no, no, please, I want to celebrate your mother. 
And in fact, it was because of that and because the book was so well received that I then decided that I wanted to spend the rest of my career rehabilitating women whom history has treated badly. Well, I mean, there's a lot of similarities then between Olga and uh, your family, the Pasternak family vilifying her, and Wallace and the royal family being so awful. I mean, when I was reading the book, I was just horrified at the attitude so I, I was going to go back and talk to you about your very first book, Princess yes. in Love, because, of yes. course, that one you took a lot of flack for. Of course, that was about Princess Diana and her affair with James Hewitt. Exactly. But eventually you were vindicated. Yes, that's right. I mean, when I first wrote the book, it was astonishing because nobody wanted to believe that the marriage between the Prince and Princess of Wales was uh, in any way suffering. Everyone wanted to believe in the royal fairy tale. Um, And so it was very much a case of shoot the messenger. And in fact, this summer was 25 years since I wrote the book. And I wrote a, a big article in a British newspaper telling exactly what had happened and the degree to which... Diana was behind my book, she knew I was writing Mm -hmm. it, how manipulative she really was, and how devastating for me it was when it came out, and I received this kind of press opprobrium, uh, and and, and, and how long that took me to recover from that. because, sorry, it was was 20 years before you actually published your next book. That's right, because I felt so um, devastated and crucified, and I'd had that experience of being vilified in the press Mm. and I think it was that that made me warm so much more to Wallace Simpson and be able to identify with her and understand her because she was a woman who was absolutely vilified from the moment the world knew about her and the abdication and 80 years on that myth endures. Yes I I was very interested in why you wanted to spend your career rehabilitating women whom history has treated badly, which you've partly answered. But I also want to, I also wanted to ask if there was a personal motivation here as well, because all your um, subjects are linked by tragic love affairs, quite frankly. Mm. Is there um, a personal I don't motivation? Think the personal motivation is to do with that so much. I think it's to do with that concept of a woman being misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, when I was experiencing the press slack for Princess in Love, I felt that same sense of impotence and injustice. Right. Hang on a minute. I've told the absolute truth. I wasn't a royal hack, so all the other royal hacks were jealous, so they destroyed me in the press. Uh, You know, I spoke the truth, and I was vilified for it. And so it's kind of led to a quest in me that I want to uncover the truth and I want to celebrate the truth as opposed to uh, the truth being manipulated in a way that mainly suits men, actually, because both Olga Vinskaya, Wallace Simpson were, uh, were the subject. They were vilified mainly by men and male biographers and male historians. Well, that's in the case of Olga. I mean, obviously, Wallace was very much at the behest of a very powerful male establishment. Yes. I call them the unholy trinity of the church, the palace, meaning the male courtiers, and the parliament who were out to destroy her. And I think it's a particularly relevant book today in our sort of Me Too climate that here is a woman whose voice, her true voice, has never been heard because she was crushed by powerful establishment men. Yes, I have to agree with you. I finished the book over the weekend and I, I was so, so sorry for her because I think... Right at the beginning, she didn't 
really want to marry the prince. That's exactly right, and that's the greatest myth, mm. that everybody thinks she was this sort of pushy, cold, ambitious Mm-mm. bitch who somehow forced the abdication, when the actual truth is far from being the villain of the piece. She was the victim. She didn't want to marry him. No. She um, absolutely, it suited her, her life with her second husband, Ernest Simpson, and yes, we could say, okay, well, she was guilty of um, falling prey to the flattery of the Prince of Wales, but quite frankly, you know, who wouldn't um, in 1930 to be flattered that the Prince of Wales wants you in his royal entourage. Well, but as, as Wallace said to her <laughs> beloved Aunt Bessie, what a bump I'll get when the Prince finds a suitable bride and drops me. And, and she always thought that this fascination that he had with her would naturally come to an end and then she would get on with her life. Absolutely. And I think no one could have been more surprised at well maybe not surprised is the word but he was completely obsessed with her completely yeah. obsessed he 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 wouldn't let her go and I think that must have been very very hard for her and whilst he was charming and he was called the people's king um she was way ahead of her time in in my opinion or from what what I was reading I wanted to ask you about Meghan Markle. Are there similarities? How much has the palace changed, really? That's my last question. What's fascinating for me was um, having written and researched the book on Diana and then doing Wallace, Mm. eight years later, I don't think much has changed. And it is the courtiers who are all-powerful. And what Meghan Markle doesn't realise is that you cannot live like an A-list celebrity as a member of the monarchy, and she thinks she can override the courtiers, the men in grey, as (laughs) as Diana called them, and also Wallace referred Mm. to them very early on. She was extremely bright and prescient, as you say. She knew exactly what was happening. Um, and you will never, you will never override them or overrule them. So I think we're going to see a very difficult situation that's already arising for Meghan Markle. Yes, uh, and, and that's very obvious. Anna, I wish we had more time, but yes, we don't. Do. Sadly, <laughs> I'd love to talk to you, so I do hope that you do come back. Um, so the three books that we were speaking about was Princess in Love, and then followed by Lara, the untold love story and the inspiration for Dr. Zhivago, and the latest book, which is untitled The Real Wallace Simpson, which reveals a character that I think that we can learn to love. And I love the fact that you gave her the title as the inscription in the book. Thank you. <laughs> and Anna, thank you so much for talking to us this morning, and I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a complete pleasure. Me thank too. Thank you. Let me go. 
Statements after an arrest under the Immorality Act, Athel Fugard's iconic play is now playing in its final weeks at the Fugard Theatre Studio. This brand new staging of Fugard's haunting South African classic stars Marlo Minar and Liesel de Kock and has received five-star reviews, with the press describing the production as riveting and unnerving, an electrifying production. Time is running out to see Statements After an Arrest under the Immorality Act, which must close on October the 26th. Go to thefugard.com and reserve your seats today. Enjoy magnificent entertainment at the Belmont Mount Nelson and you'll feel that it's summertime and the living is easy. Idet Roche and Samantha Rydell perform in great composers of yesteryear. Get under the skin of Porter, Gershwin, Rogers and Hart, Leonard Bernstein and more. As you wine and dine with a three-course meal, experience the glamour of a period drama. It's on the 12th, 19th and 26th of October. For bookings, call the Belmont Mount Nelson on 021-483-1948. The Cape Town Philharmonic Orchestra and the Chamber of Commerce and Industry have teamed up to present another fabulous spectacular gala at the Artscape Opera House on the 20th of October at 5pm. Brandon Phillips will be on the podium. Alan Committee is the Master of Ceremonies, Aviva Pelham, the Music Director, and soloists include Don Vino, Township Opera, members of the Zip Zap Circus, Linnell Kennard, and many more. You won't want to leave the Opera House again. Get your tickets while they're still available at CompuTicket or Artscape Dialy Seat, 021-421-7695 now. Jy graag skouerskier met Morris en Muzieksterre? Wees vanaf 8 tot 12 oktober by die Hugo Lambrechts Auditorium in Perro, waar 18 opkomende klassieke muzieksterre sake gaan uitspook in die 2019 Nationale Jeugmuziekcompetitie. Die winner word op zaterdag 12 oktober aangekondig, wanneer die finale 6 saam met die Kaapstadse Philharmonische Orkest optree. And the track you heard just before the ads was All My Love, sung by Eve Boswell. Don't forget to call in for our easy competition to win a copy of Dr. Wayne W. Dyer's Happiness is the Way. Call us on 021-401-1013 and tell us what is the way, happiness or sadness. The winner will be contacted after the show, so don't delay, get calling now. The number again, 021 401 
1013. John Hanks considered how we should react to a book titled Orca, The Day the Great White Sharks Disappeared, written by Richard Pierce. I wonder how many listeners to Fine Music Radio have an exaggerated or irrational fear of sharks, a condition known as galeophobia, which almost certainly and perhaps understandably has been exacerbated by Hollywood films depicting sharks as calculated, vengeful, diabolical monsters. This, of course, is a great pity, as the eminent marine conservationist Sylvia Earle has said, and I quote, Sharks are beautiful animals, and if you're lucky enough to see lots of them, that means that you're in a healthy ocean. You should be afraid if you're in the ocean and don't see sharks. So, how should we react to a book just published and written by Richard Pierce with the title Orca, The Day the Great White Sharks Disappeared? Would the oceans really be less healthy without great whites? And what would happen to make them disappear? To get a balanced view of what can so easily become such an emotive discussion, I asked one of South Africa's most experienced marine and coastal ecologists, Dr. Alan Haydorn, to write a review of the book for me to use. And here it is. I'm quoting Alan Haydorn. Richard Pierce tells the story of a small fishing village at Hansbai on the South African south coast, which over the past 20 years experienced an unexpected economic boom due to unusual entrepreneurial initiative, shark cage diving, to enable tourists to view face-to-face one of the world's most fearsome marine predators, the great white shark. The knock-on effect of this tourist attraction was substantial through the development of guest houses and restaurants and the creation of urgently needed jobs. The economic upsurge at Hans Bay was also marked by the acquisition of specially adapted catamarans and other shark-viewing vessels. A further positive consequence was the development of research focused specifically on great white sharks. All of this activity, entirely on the presence and regular sighting of great whites, mainly near Dyer Island to the east of Danger Point, where they preyed upon a seal colony. Then, suddenly... In 2016, the unimaginable happened. Underwater viewing of sharks became erratic, and then for weeks on end it seemed as if the great whites had disappeared entirely. The economic viability of the Hans Bay community nosedived, and to the dismay of many, this coincided with the discovery of great white carcasses being washed up on the beach in the region. At the same time, a pair of orcas, also known as killer whales, but they're actually not whales, but dolphins, were sighted regularly in the area. Orcas have been recorded on occasion in False Bay, but these two animals were recognised by each having a flopped over dorsal fin. It was not long before the Hansby research team established a distinct relationship between the presence of these two orcas and the disappearance of great whites. They came to the conclusion that the orcas did not feed on the shark carcasses per se, but they ripped them open to get at their nutrient-rich livers, which make up 24% of the total body weight of the shark. Richard Pierce, who is the chairman of the Shark Conservation Society, presents this gripping story in a brilliant manner. The book is eminently readable, beautifully illustrated with photographs and maps, and in relating the fortunes and misfortunes of individual Hans by residents and the extent to which their well-being is dependent on the ecological processes in the marine environment, mainly the interaction between the two apex predators, sharks and dolphins, this has become crystal clear. 
yet the author widens the picture by also referring to other human incursions in the sea, including the negative influences of pollution, over-exploitation and poaching, and by the more subtle changes brought about by changes in the global climate. Thus, he underlines the vital importance of wise and coordinated management of both land and sea as the long-term survival of all life, including our own, is at stake. This realization should be fundamental at all levels of education and certainly to all political decision-makers. Thank you, Helen Haydorn, for this very positive review and your additional comment to me that Pierce's book is one of the most interesting, fascinating, but also disconcerting books you've read in a long time. The title again, Orca, The Day the Great White Sharks Disappeared, is written by Richard Pierce, published in 2019 by Penguin Random House in Cape Town, and you can buy a copy for 190 rand. Philippa Schaefitz dipped her spoon into Jamie Oliver's Veg, his quest to introduce more meat-free, veg-based meals into the daily diet. Veg by Jamie Oliver, a Michael Joseph imprint of Penguin Random House. The Naked Chef, Jamie Oliver's debut cookery show in 1999, introduced us to unfussy, delicious, doable food from a chef so likable that we instantly fell in love. We bought millions of the books that went with the program and all the subsequent books that followed along with his not-to-be-missed TV shows. He made cooking so easy, such fun to do dinners at home with friends. Jamie believes in ingredients, fresh, seasonal quality. Today he feels strongly about healthy vegetarian eating, not necessarily going the whole way, but introducing more meat-free, veg-based meals into the daily diet. Over the last eight years, that's the way his family eats, at least three times a week. He has slowly worked on a repertoire of recipes that are collated in the new cookbook, Veg. These are not made in minute stuff, but interesting, delicious, full of flavor recipes that introduces a cook to different ingredients, new styles of cooking and techniques from diverse sources. The recipes are organized into sections. To begin, must try curries and stews, Japanese-style crispy cauliflower katsu, baked, not fried, with a light curry sauce and lime pickle chilies, and a cauliflower tikka masala. A veggie chili with black rice, tortillas, and chili yogurt. Stuffed curried aubergines with a spiced tamarind and peanut sauce. A vegetable biryani with a bread lid that can be torn apart for serving. There's an irresistible choice of pies, parcels, and bakes. Homemade dosa with roasted veg, a stunning summer veg pie, and a blanket of golden sesame-studded scrunched phyllo. A cauliflower cheese pizza pie, a kilo of asparagus turned into a soup and quiche to serve together for a great meal. Yemenai-style yeasted pancakes spread with egg topped with smoky tahini, aubergine, and salsas. From the section on soups and samis, I have to make the spiced parsnip soup with homemade parsnip crisps, and of course the silky fennel soup 
with its vibrant swirl of pureed baby spinach and chunky parmesan croutons. There's a pulled mushroom sandwich and a Greek-style cheese toasty. Blissfully, sections on tray bakes and one-pot wonders are included. A reverse puff pastry pizza promises the crispest of crusts as a pastry tops a roasted veg filling. Risottas and rice dishes share a chapter with Asian-style noodles. In the pasta section, there's mac and cheese with plenty of greens and gnocchi made with butternut squash. Porcini balls take the place of traditional meatballs and spaghetti, with a sweet and spicy sun-dried tomato, basil and parmesan sauce. Black beans and mushrooms are used for veggie burgers. Salads are serious, big enough to make a meal rather than remain on the side. Brunch and Friday night nibbles are as peeling and innovative as the rest of the book. The book ends with Jamie's hints and tips on ingredients and how to maximize flavor, plus a section on nutrition and a guide to balanced eating. The format of the book is clear and simple, easy to follow recipes with photographs that illustrate the finished dish. We're listening to Forgotten Dreams, composed by Leroy Anderson and played by Mike Lartz on the clarinet. 
Vanessa Levenstein found a common link in three seemingly different reads. Books are read against the background of the socio-political and within the context of where we are in our personal lives. Sometimes when reading we need to escape, and other times we need to immerse ourselves in the world. I've read three books in succession, Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, the debut novel of Cape Town author Susan Newham Blake called As If Born to You, and Under the Camelthorn Tree, Raising a Family of Lions by Kate Nichols. At the time of reading, the world felt violent, unsettling and uncertain. We learned with horror about the rape and murder of Yunene Khwetiana. And about a month and a half later, Greta Thunberg spoke to the world leaders about climate change. Against this background, I was looking forward to Gladwell's talking to strangers, especially as he usually has an ability to make sense of the world. In this book, he deconstructs how when meeting strangers, we actually believe them to be transparent, when in fact they're not. Gladwell writes that when it comes to friends, spies and paedophiles, we are blinded by our truth default. We base our assumptions on what we consider normative behavior. He examined high-profile cases, the seemingly inappropriate reaction of Amanda Knox, which contributed to her conviction, and the famous example of Chamberlain's meeting with Hitler, and subsequent belief that Hitler was to be trusted. And then Gladwell just goes off track, and conjures an objectionable analysis of Brock Turner meeting Emily Doe. The New York Times wrote in their review, A young woman and a young man meet at a party, Gladwell writes, then proceed to tragically misunderstand each other's intentions, and they are drunk. This is a bizarre way to describe a situation that ended with a conscious Turner being found on top of an unconscious Miller behind a dumpster. The article goes on to describe the assault and asks the question, in what universe is this the result of a tragic misunderstanding? A sideline, Emily Doe has reclaimed her name Chanel Miller and is telling her own story. Gladwell also mentions coupling when he links an object or place to a person's suicide. When you think of Sylvia Plath's death, you think of her leaving milk and bread for her two small children, then turning on the oven with its toxic town gas and sticking her head inside. Gladwell theorizes that if there wasn't the gas oven, Plath could still be alive. <laughs> Maybe not. However, Gladwell, if nothing else, makes one think and question his theories even if it is to disagree with him. Now, a book I had no expectations about was first-time author's Susan Newham Blake's As If Born to You. The story is topical, what with the recent publication of Zephanie. As If Born to You is about a black teenager unraveling the truth about her adopted white mother. Piecing the parts together is Anna, a dedicated psychologist whose own life is a mess. The novel is relatable and honest. Secrets are revealed and stories are told. The writer doesn't battle with being politically correct or incorrect. She writes it as she sees it and feels it. The story would have been as powerful without all the protagonists having huge traumas in their past, but we can forgive her this, because when a book is authentic in its telling, the world's craziness doesn't make more sense. It's just we feel more connected to each other. Looking forward to reading more from Susan Newham Blake. The final book is Under the Camelthorn Tree, Raising a Family of Lions by Kate Nichols. A single mother, taking her brood of five to live in Botswana, homeschooling them, and living in a tent is, if nothing else, awe-inspiring.
Swapping the comforts and trappings of a suburban environment for the great outdoors takes courage, vision, and a dash of romanticism. And there are happier times in the book when you almost feel that Kate, a former actress, was watching herself on stage. Yet, slight niggle aside, Kate is a patient parent, an active community member, and environmentalist. She even meets a camel man. Only he's the lion man. Her family move in with him, and they study a pride of lions. This beautiful existence is brutally destroyed when Kate is attacked by three men. Rebuilding the fragments of her shattered being, she has to reclaim herself and her relationships with her families. She writes with awareness, not only for her own trauma, but also the shared experience of other women. A powerful story. So, talking to strangers were interesting, felt clinical and off the mark. As if born to you, resonated the South African zeitgeist, and the autobiographical under the camelthorn tree, raising a family of lions, has its roots entwined with gender-based violence and the environment. In the first, we're running out of time, so we're going to hold over Leslie Beek's review on her children's books till next month. But to round up this month's book choice, we have Vanessa speaking to Martine Volks about a special book club that is dear to our hearts and will likely creep into yours. Beautiful and brave, Jamie Rose was an avid reader. Perhaps books played an extra special part in her life because she was diagnosed with a brain tumor when she was nine years old and passed away at the age of twelve. Her equally beautiful mother, Martine, is determined to honor her daughter's memory. By paying it forward, and so Jamie's book club was born. Welcome to Book Choice. Thank you, Vanessa. <laughs> Great to be here. Now, tell me about the project and your daughter's love of reading. So, Jamie, from a very young age,、um, adored her books. She was impeccable about her books, the way she kept them, how she sorted them on her shelves. She used to read to children. It was very important part of her world. And after she passed. I was sitting in her room, and her books were just all on her shelf, looking out. Where can we go? And I thought to myself, clothes I can give away. And in this case, I just thought it needs to go to a place where we had spent a lot of time, that being oncology wards, oncology clinics, and hospitals, where we just found there was a gap and a real need to fill the space. Where children can be exposed to beautiful books and continue a legacy. That's beautiful. And you mentioned that she used to read to children. She read to them in the actual wards. She read to the kids that couldn't read yet, as they were too young, or maybe perhaps couldn't speak the language. Yeah. And she took control. She absolutely loved teaching and playing her part, being important, and telling others. Stories. Well, I love the fact that she is important, and this important work continues through your book collection. So, she read to the young kids in hospital, and so it seems to be the natural progression that you want these children to still be able to appreciate her love of reading. Absolutely, and to be surrounded in books.、Uh, many kids don't have the books. Yeah.、Um, and we found when we were spending a lot of time in the hospitals and oncology. Clinics that there was something missing, you know, the, the amount of books. So from there, you decided you wanted to give books back, and you started 
doing a book collection. Is that correct? Correct. So originally when Jamie was diagnosed, we raised money with For the Love of Jamie initiative. And after she passed, this was our opportunity to pay it forward. And instead of us taking in, this was about handing it out and, and spreading the love and to thank everybody for everything that they had done to support us on our journey. So the project was born. Which is beautiful. Mm. Absolutely beautiful. Okay, so you found that you would go into oncology wards and there often weren't books for children to read. Yes. So you went about collecting books. You put in an appeal, you've collected books, and is it true to say that the books have just piled in? Piled in. So from Jamie's bookshelf to, as you correctly said, I, I put it out there and the community have just been phenomenal. You've got stacks and stacks of books stacks in your living room. In my living room. And it's just been a very cathartic process for me personally, taking time out, being still, and sort of rearranging books into orders, receiving the books, the messages that come with the books. So it's taken a bit of time, but the process is... Ongoing. Ongoing. So when you donate books, you're donating them to libraries, to under-resourced schools. The initial book distribution, where did it start? So, as I say, because we spend so much time in hospitals and oncology wards and clinics, we that was our first priority. Yeah. And then I... You know, began to think, what about schools, underprivileged schools? You know, you can never limit reading from places to age groups. Okay. So I'm glad you mentioned age groups because you're looking to collect books predominantly for children up to teens. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. Correct. However, in time, we will look at collecting adult books for those nurses that are working long hours, for the parents that are coming through yeah. to sit with their kids. And each book, when you give the books to the, the various institutions, mm. you give them in a beautiful pink bookshop. Absolutely. Um, for the love of Jamie, spreading the love. Jamie, obviously, pink equals love. And so we've collected bookshelves. We make them pink. Um, there's a beautiful spreading love for Jamie um, logo above it, just to bring it a bit more... To home. To home. And it's part of the narrative. So the, the logo, Spring Jamie's Love, is part of your narrative and part Correct. of your way to give back. And it's such a meaningful and beautiful way you're doing it. And why it's perfect you're speaking to us on Book Choice is we're speaking to readers. And I'm sure they've all got lots of beautiful books for kids sitting around, maybe gathering a bit of dust. We don't want them too dusty and torn. We want your beautiful books. And where can they drop off these books? So thank you, Vanessa. Martine's Clothing Boutique in Seapoint, corner of Regent Road and St. John's, between 9 and 5 during okay. the week. And you can, if you've got any queries, email Martins on the Bay. That's Martins with an S on the Bay at gmail.com. And it's an amazing initiative for an amazing child and an amazing mother. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jamie Rose will be very, very proud. And the lucky winner of our competition to win a copy of Dr. Wayne W. Dyer's Happiness is the Way, published by Hay House, is Anne Catchpole. Anne will contact you after the show. And that's a wrap for this month's selection of good books. I wish you many happy hours of reading and look forward to bringing you a fresh haul on the first Monday of next month. If you missed all or part of this month's show or simply need a reminder of the books we've reviewed, 
visit our website, fmr.co.za, where we post the Book Choice podcast every month. My thanks to Shegofatso Modiko for working the desk, Rick Everett for the musical interludes, and stay tuned for Matinee with Brendan Van Ryan after the news. FMR.